You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. This week on Yap, we're chatting with expert in human behavior and groundbreaker in building habits that stick, Dr. BJ Fogg. BJ is a social scientist and he's the founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University, where he directs research and innovation. He also trains Fortune 500 companies on health, productivity, and financial well-being. But he's perhaps most well-known as the author of the New York Times bestseller, Tiny Habits. BJ was named a new guru you should know by Fortune Magazine for his insights about mobile and social networks. And his work has been featured in major outlets like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Wired, and so many more. This episode was originally recorded live on Clubhouse back in July of 2021, but it's still as relevant as ever and evergreen content. And so we've cut it down to the most valuable parts so you guys can listen, learn, and profit even faster. In this episode, we cover why the traditional approaches to habit building just don't work. We understand what BJ means by a tiny habit and how tiny habits actually can help you create habits that stick. And we also get into the revolutionary fog behavior model and the ABCs of tiny habits. And lastly, BJ lets us in on the one habit that he suggests everyone should pick up. So if you've tried everything and you can't seem to make those habits stick, turn up your volume and let's get right into it. BJ, you are one of the world's top experts. You wrote the breakout book, Tiny Habits. Considering your background in social sciences and behavior, I'd love to know why you initially got interested in the study of human habits. Because I myself felt like I was slipping. I was gaining weight. I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't feeling as productive as I wanted to be. And it was like, man, BJ, you're a behavior guy. And your life seems to be going a direction that you don't like. And I was probably, let's see, I'm 57 now. So I was in my 40s. And I felt like if you don't turn the corner now, you won't turn the corner, (laughs) which is not true. You You can turn the corner. You can create habits at any age. So I felt a little bit of an urgency, like this is going the wrong direction. And I really need to figure out how to optimize my life. And so outside of Stanford, outside of my Stanford research lab, I just started, I call it goofing around with my own habits, but it's basically experimenting and trying out different ways to change my behavior. So it really was out of a personal need and a concern that it's like now or never, which by the way, everybody, again, that's not true. You can form habits at any age, but that's how I felt. I love that. And so I know that you take a very unique approach when it comes to habit building and you kind of turn the whole traditional models on its head. So most approaches to behavior believe that people, if they have enough information about why they should make a change, they'll make it and it's easy, it's immediate. But you say that behavior change is really not that simple. So why don't these traditional approaches work and what do you suggest is the alternative? There's a variety of traditional views. The one you were talking about right there, I call the information action fallacy. And it doesn't work. And it goes like this. If we just give people information about exercise or nutrition or stress, that will change their attitude around the importance of exercise or stress or whatever, which will then change their behavior. So it's a very logical model. You know, information will convince people about the importance And then they'll be motivated and change their behavior. And as everyone listening knows, we're not that rational. And information alone does a very poor job 
of changing our behavior. Now, information might be a component. Now, information itself is <laughs> hard to define clearly, but what doesn't seem to work well are these steps. Information then leads to a change in your attitude or your opinion. That doesn't work very reliably. It works in some situations, but not extremely well. Because you tend to believe what you want to believe. I mean, you could take a lot of social science and summarize it in that statement. People believe what they want to believe. I mean, look what happened with the elections in the U.S. and all of that. People were seeing the same information, but interpreting it differently according to how they wanted to see it. So that's one link that doesn't work very well. And then the next link is if we can get attitudes to change, does that then lead to behavior change? And that sometimes works, but it's not that reliable. So when you have those two links in the system that are weak, both of them are weak, then that sequence of information cascading down to lasting behavior change is really precarious. And I gave it a name, so that's why I gave it a name. So we were able to talk about it, and I called it the information action fallacy. Then there's other traditions that have to do with how habits work and repetition is the key and you only can do one habit at a time and you have to track your behavior and things that are just myths and don't really matter. And we inherited those, at least in the culture I grew up in, thinking that's how you do habits. And some of those came, if you go back to William James, he kind of laid the foundation for a lot of good things, but a lot, some of the bad things. And then some of them have just been misinterpretations of academic studies. So I'll stop there. I'm BJ and I'll stop answering the question at that point. <laughs> we all know you're BJ. You were the main star of this show. So then I guess that really hurts our motivation, right? When we try to do these new habits, we're trying to follow the rules, but the traditional approaches, just like you said, are faulty. So talk to us about motivation and you know how these types of traditional models don't support us building habits because we lose motivation. We feel like shame that we can't follow through. Yeah. And that's, that's one of various problems. And I'll just give a really specific example. A lot of us were led to believe that you do one habit at a time and you track it daily. And that's essential. Only change one habit at a time and you got to track it daily. And I used to have wall charts up and you know, check boxes and things like that. I have come to believe that for most people, that is a bad idea. And here's why. My coaching of over 40,000, it's probably more like 60,000 people I've coached personally. I stopped counting at 40,000. So this is 10 years of coaching people in tiny habits week after week after week, two to 300 people a week, sometimes 600 if it was the new year. And just seeing the patterns and seeing the data, that the key to creating habits is the emotions that people feel when they do the behavior, and the feeling of success reinforces that behavior. In other words, it makes it more automatic. And when you put a wall chart up and you're tracking, like, oh, I'm going to run for an hour a day, and you see that chart, and you see all the gaps so that have X's or frowny faces rather than checks or smiles you're not feeling very successful seeing all those gaps. And that can be very discouraging. It's like, oh, what, oh, I just don't have the willpower. I don't have the discipline and so on. So I never advocate that people put up a chart and track their habits daily. Now, for some people, unusual people, it will help them feel successful. But for many people, when you see all those gaps, it's like, oh my gosh, it's not working. Once again, I'm failing and you start blaming yourself and so on. So even techniques like tracking your behavior, as much as people advocate for that and say, oh, you track it daily, I push back against that. And the techniques like making a public commitment or tracking or all those other techniques fall under two, two things matter. One when creating habits, and I call this maxim number one, help yourself do what you already want to do. That's really important. So don't pick habits you don't want to do. And if you don't want to track your habit, don't do that. Help yourself do what you already want to do. And maxim number two is help yourself feel successful. So if something like making a public commitment helps you feel successful, do it. 
If it makes you concerned or worries you or makes you feel unsuccessful, don't. If tracking helps you feel successful, do it. If tracking just highlights and, what shall I say, archives the fact that you're failing, don't do it. In the tiny habits method, one of the things that I said early on, so this I started teaching it and sharing it in 2011, so 10 years ago. And I would say practice and revise. Practice meaning you won't be perfect. And revise is iterate. You know, you're not going to be perfect and you're going to have to revise. So the method is one that acknowledges, the tiny habits method acknowledges there's going to be twists and turns. You won't be perfect, but you just keep going. You keep practicing and revising and you'll figure it out. So all those traditional things that you've heard, look at those through the lenses of the maxims. Is it helping you do what you already want to do? And is it helping you feel successful? And if it's doing both, great. That technique is good for you. But if it's missing on either account or both, then it's not a good match for you. Yeah. I love the fact that your method is not like pass or fail. It's like you can just keep trying and trying and trying until you get it right. Yeah. I like talking about it for many of these domains that, of habits that people are looking at, whether it's stress reduction or sleep or changing how you eat. Think of yourself as a little baby learning to walk. Yeah, you're not really a baby and you know how to walk. But within this domain of nutrition or stress or sleeping, you may be a newbie like a baby. And it's a process of learning how to do that. And as you're going along, you think of yourself as a toddler and you're going to stumble, you're going to fall, but that's okay. That's part of the process. I think it helps you give yourself compassion, but it also describes how the process works. If you get up and keep going, you'll get better. And you'll get better. And pretty soon you'll be able to do it without even thinking about it, which is what a habit is. You'll be able to eat on your game plan automatically without thinking about it. You'll turn something that seemed very hard and challenging and create all these stumbles for you into something that seems effortless like walking is today. Awesome. We also have a guest that joined on stage. John Asaraf also came on my show before. John, welcome to the stage. Thank you for joining Hey there, Hala, and hey, BJ, nice to um, connect with both of you again. Hey. So, BJ, I love to start off with context. I love to give my listeners a real good foundation so that they can really understand the rest of the conversation. So let's start off with something super basic. Let's talk about the qualities of a tiny habit and why we should work with tiny habits. All right. I'll give a quick summary. One way to think about it is A, B, C. That wasn't deliberate. I'm kind of suspicious of acronyms and things like that, but it turns out to be ABC. The B is the behavior part. So the behavior is something that you want to turn into a habit. So a habit is a type of behavior. It's a behavior you do quite automatically. You do without thinking or contemplating or deliberating. And so in tiny habits, you take whatever habit you want, whatever that behavior is, and you make it super, super small so it doesn't require much motivation. If something's hard to do, it requires motivation. If something is super tiny, like tidying up one item in your living room, it doesn't require tons of motivation. So the hack in the tiny habits method is to make the behavior so small that you don't have to rely on motivation. So that's the B part. Backing up to A, that stands for anchor. In tiny habits, and I've given a TED talk on this, there was this breakthrough moment when I was goofing around with my own behavior and I understood that I needed to make it tiny because I looked at my own behavior model and said, oh, if it's easy to do, then motivation could be higher or low and I don't have to keep sustaining motivation. Let's make it easy. But then it's like, what's going to prompt it? What's going to remind me to do it? And I'll be quick on this, but there was a moment I'm getting out of the shower, going through my this and then this and then this, the sequence of things you do. And it's like, oh, there it is. You figure out what the habit naturally comes after. Oh, after is the key. And so I call that anchoring. So you take the habit and you attach it. You anchor it to something that you already do in your life that's stable and reliable. Other people have taken that concept and they call it piggybacking or habit stacking. It's the same thing. I called it anchoring and other people have iterated on that. But so you don't use alarms or post-it notes or just yourself to remember. 
you deliberately find something you already do reliably, like brushing your teeth, is the anchor that reminds you to floss. And so you find where it fits naturally. That's A and B. And then the C is for celebration, which is a way that you cause yourself to feel a positive emotion as you do the behavior immediately after. And it's the emotion that reinforces that behavior, that makes it more likely to happen, that makes it automatic. So you're not leaving the emotion to chance. You are deliberately causing that in yourself through a technique called celebration. There's over 100 ways to do this. And you're hacking your emotions in order to cause the habit to wire in very quickly. So you've got anchor, behavior, and celebration. And all three of them are hacks. You're hacking what reminds you by finding a routine. You're hacking the behavior by making it super tiny so you don't have to worry about motivation. And you're hacking your emotion so you can wire the habit in quickly. Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and profiters, they may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They are in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that They can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, we can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. 
And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. And Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm gonna like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to dive deeper on this ABC mnemonic because I think it's really important. I know that you have something called the Maui habit, and I think it will help people really understand what this is all about and start their mornings, right? So can you talk to us about that? Yeah, yeah. The Maui habit, in the whole book, Tiny Habits, there's only one habit that I recommend for everybody, and it's the Maui habit. It goes like this. After my feet touch the floor in the morning, I will say, it's going to be a great day. So you say those seven words and you anchor it to your feet touching the floor in the morning. And that's the tiny habit recipe. So the the sequence of after I, I will, I've called a recipe. So after I brush, I will floss one tooth. After I set my breakfast plate on the counter, I will thank my partner for breakfast. After I pour a glass of water, I'll set out my vitamins. So you have these after I, I will. So you're, you're designing a habit into your life using this recipe format. So the recipe accounts for A and B. It doesn't include the celebration. Once the habit wires in, you no longer have to celebrate it. I mean, celebration, that emotion serves the purpose of automating the behavior or making the behavior more automatic. And so you have tiny habits, you have you design the habits by having these recipes. In the back of the Tiny Habits book, I have 300 sample recipes that people can browse through. But in the book itself, it's like, here's the one habit that I think you should be doing. And then the rest of the book, the book is about creating any habit that you want. And I give you a step-by-step system for doing that. And I don't prescribe a bunch of habits for everybody because we're all different. But certainly the Maui habit is, oh my gosh, I just... I get emails and comments all the time about how it's those seven words have just transformed people's lives. So I'm really happy to prescribe that to everybody listening here as well. Now, and there's different ways to do it. Some people say, I'm going to make it an awesome day. Some people do it after I look in the mirror, I will say it's going to be a great day. So there's variations on it. But starting your day with that, I guess it's you're like setting an intention to make it a great day. And I do it even when I don't think it's going to be a great day because I have found that just by saying that, even if I don't really believe it, like, oh my gosh, today's going to be like awful and terrible. By saying it's going to be a great day, then something to me goes, okay, you're going to do what you can do to make this a great day. And usually it does turn out to be a great day. I think that's super important to set intention in the morning and and make that a habit. So I'd love to move on to your famous fog behavior model. This is something that honestly, like I think five separate people have mentioned on my podcast in passing or just referring to you specifically. And it's a really simple formula that helps you pick apart the components of any particular behavior. So this helps us to understand the causes of behavior. It lets us pinpoint any problems to address these behaviors directly. And it boils down to behavior equals motivation, ability, and prompt. So B equals map. Could you break down these four things? So behavior, motivation, ability, and prompt. So the behavior model came together for me in 2007. And I didn't realize I was doing this, but at the time, 
I think I was feeling quite discouraged by how confusing the academic and research landscape was around human behavior and social science in general. I mean, it is. I mean, social science is really hard. Social science research is much harder than physical sciences. And I'm not the first to say that. I think Mae Jameson gave a talk and she talked about why. And when I heard that talk, I remember exactly where I was at Stanford. I was driving. I remember exactly where I was. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's exactly right. And I'm a social scientist. And that means that the research findings may not all fit together. You can get conflicting findings, even from great experiments. You might be, well, this shows this and this shows this and they don't add up. And after, I guess, 12 years of that, I guess what I did, I didn't deliberately do this, was like, I'm going to push all of that aside over a decade of studying social science and running my own experiments and so on and start over. And I just went back to like, what comprises the behavior? And I knew motivation was a component. And then I knew ability was a component. And then at one point, prompt dropped in. And that was it. It was like all behavior. And I write it out as an equation, B equals MAP, but it's not really a, an equation, like a math equation. And I call it a model. I don't call it an equation. So behavior happens when motivation, ability, and prompt come together at the same moment. And if any one of those elements, components is missing, it does not happen. So for example, let's say this morning, I wanted to call my mom. And let's say I had the ability to call my mom, but nothing prompted me. It didn't happen. So without a prompt, it doesn't happen. Or let's say right now I really want to call my mom and I'm seeing a post-it note that says call your mom, but I can't do it right now because I'm talking to you all. So I don't have the ability. So you can analyze behaviors that happen in terms of what was the motivator, what were the ability factors, and what was the prompt. I used to call that trigger, but I changed it to prompt so it would be clear. And you could, like you said, you can also look at behaviors that didn't happen and say, why didn't that behavior happen? And there's a troubleshooting order to it. And what's fun about the behavior model is you can say it in one sentence, behavior happens when these things come together. But now, what, 13, 14 years after working with the behavior model, I'm still discovering other ways to use it. So it's Really simple to learn on the surface, but it's a really rich and powerful model that it's just fun. <laughs> it's a blast to get clarity around analyzing behaviors or designing for behaviors when you know exactly what the components are. It's motivation, it's ability and prompt. And within each of those categories, I've defined what motivation is, I've defined what ability is, and I've defined the sources of prompts. So I've gone deeper and mapped out what those things are. Yeah, and I definitely am going to pick your brain in a bit. So let's kind of dive deep on each one of these parts of your model, not equation. I said it wrong before. So most people confuse behaviors, aspirations, and outcomes. So why don't we start there? Why are those Ooh. things not the same? Yeah, and so that's a different model that I have, but a really important one. In fact, that one's so important, it's on my business card. I have two models on my business card. I have the fog behavior model. And I have this model that I call the swarm of behaviors. And what the swarm of behavior model helps people distinguish between really two categories, these aspirations and outcomes that I kind of put in the same category, and then specific behaviors. So to reach any aspiration or to reach any outcome, you've got to do specific behaviors to get there. And so as you're looking at, wow, this aspiration of I want to sleep better or this outcome is I want to finish writing a novel, any aspiration or outcome is a function of doing behaviors. And so that's what the swarm of behaviors model, a swarm of bees, swarm of behaviors model shows is you've got these behaviors with arrows leading to this cloud-like shape that inside the cloud is your aspiration or your outcome. Now, you can start either with an aspiration or with an outcome. Either way is fine. But to make progress, you've got to break it down into specific behaviors and then pick the best behaviors to get there. So there's a difference between what's in the cloud, the aspiration outcome, and specific behaviors. You can design for specific behaviors. That's 
the B and B equals MAP, you can't design directly for an aspiration. You can't design directly for an outcome. You have to break it down into the behaviors and then you can use the behavior model and a subset of those tiny habits to get there. Now, let's go to the difference between aspiration and outcome. An aspiration is something that isn't quite measurable and you may not know when you've actually achieved it. Like, oh, I want to sleep better or I want to be closer to my parents. And you might sense you've made progress, but there's no way to say, yep, I did it. Where an outcome, like finish writing a book or getting a certain score on the GRE, an outcome is something that like, check, I did it. I arrived, I landed there. In our ordinary language, we use the word goal to refer to both things. When you say, hey, what's your goal? People might say, oh, I want to sleep better. And other people might say, oh, I want to sleep eight hours a night. And we consider both of those goals, but those are different things. And so in behavior design and in my work, I don't use the word goal. And I instead will use the word aspiration or use the word outcome, depending on what we're talking about. But for most people listening, you can think of the word goal, and there's two types of goals, aspirations and outcomes. And those are good starting points. But then you've got to figure out what the behavior is that will take you to that aspiration or outcome. Awesome. So let's move on to motivation because I think this is really important. And I think motivation is less important than most of us think. So talk to us about that. What is the role Uh, that motivation plays and why is it less important? It's both more important and less important. It's more important that you need to pick new habits that you actually want. Okay. So from the beginning, don't pick habits that you don't want. Don't pick the shoulds that you're not motivated to do. So it's like so important motivation that you select new habits based on what you actually want, not based on the shoulds. The mistake that gets made is people will pick a new habit that they don't really want and they think they can somehow magically motivate themselves to do it. That's a huge mistake. Like somehow we're going to tack on motivation after the fact by gamifying it or making a public commitment or guilt tripping yourself or having a friend guilt trip you and so on. Those things work temporarily, but they don't reliably form habits. So it's more important than people think, pick habits that you want. But then it's less important. Once you do that, motivation, tacking on motivation after the fact is not the key to creating habits. So, but that's how a lot of people think about it. It's like, how do I just keep myself motivated? Well, that's a sign that you didn't pick the right habit to begin with. So back up, pick something you actually want. Let me give an example. In the world of physical activity, a lot of people think that running is a good idea. You know, oh, I'm going to run. I don't like to run, but I'm going to get myself to run this year. I'm going to keep myself motivated to run. And you hate running, and that's a bad idea. So instead, look at other ways to be physically active. It might be rowing. It might be dancing. It might be vigorous sex. It might be walking your dog. So pick a form of physical activity you actually want to do. And it's okay if you thought you wanted to run, but then you start running and you're like, man, I hate this. It's okay to back out of that and say, nope, that's not for me. I learned something. There's no shame in that. In fact, the traditional way of forming habits, somehow we get the message of like, once you set this goal, you must stick to this goal or you're a loser or a failure. And that's why practice and revise. It's like, oh, I tried running. I hate it. I'm not going to run. I'm going to revise and I'm going to pick something else like paddleboarding or riding my bike or playing fetch with my dog. So amping up motivation, tacking it on, bolting it on after the fact, is not how to create habits. So in that regard, it's less important than people think. Because a lot of people think, if I can just motivate myself, I'll get this habit. And in behavior design, you go way upstream and you select the habit based on what you actually want to do. Mm, And I just want to reiterate that. So when it comes to motivation, you want to use the phrase, I want to, rather than I should. Because that's truly what you desire and hope you have a better chance, I guess, of, of actually getting that habit, right? Yeah. And it's not just a wording shift. Really pick habits that you want. And in the food domain, this is pretty easy. Like you might have heard kale is really good and you should be eating kale. If you don't like kale, don't pick kale. Don't make that a habit. And even just rewording it, 
don't just reword it. Truly pick foods that you like and create habits around foods that you like eating. And it, and it could be a discovery process. It could be a process of trial and error. And that's all part of it. That's all part of this quest of optimizing your life. My sister, Linda, who runs the Tiny Habits Academy, and it's just a superb Tiny Habits trainer, she talks about it as like trying on shoes. And so, hey, you go in and don't expect the first shoe you try on to be the shoe. It's like, oh, I don't, that one didn't fit like expected, or that one didn't really fit my life, and so on. And that's how she talks about trying out habits. Plan on that your first attempt won't be like that perfect shoe for you that you will have to try in a few and figure it out now the more you practice creating habits the better you get it is a skill so the good news is the more you practice in the right way the faster and better you'll be at yep yep that'll be the right habit for me that one i can wire in quickly and that one you know like other skills you can get better with practice but you got to practice in the right way and i guess the takeaway point here is it's not about bolting on or somehow magically sustaining motivation after the fact. That is a losing direction, a losing approach to creating habits. Hold tight, everyone. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Young and profiters, as you may know, I launched my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass a little bit over a year ago. It was my first course. And so far, I've generated well over $500,000. And the best part is I didn't have to figure out how to set up my mastermind subscriptions, how to do abandoned cart targeting and all of that tech geeky stuff. I just left that all to Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. And if you're in that I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify magic is your AI super powered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts and it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell anything, anywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to the other options out there. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including huge global brands like Allbirds and Thrive Cosmetics. It took me a day to set up my Shopify store. I set up chat, took two minutes, and I was done. One month from thinking of the idea to implementation, a year later, I've made half a million dollars on the idea. That's what it takes in 2024, just a good idea. And then utilizing a platform like Shopify that can help you make it a reality. There is no excuse these days. If you've got a good business idea and you think you'll be a good entrepreneur, you don't have to wait any longer. You don't have to be super techie and you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash profiting. So Jeremy and John, let's go to Jeremy and John. Let's take a little question break from the mods on stage. Let's go to Jeremy, then John. Awesome. Appreciate it. So just to piggyback off what you just said, BJ, about the running, you know, if, if that's something that you try, you really dislike it, try something else. So I'm going to use a personal example for Hala. I know she was looking at implementing a cold shower habit in the morning and of course, that's not the most comfortable thing, right? Whether it's an ice bath or a cold shower, there's a lot of discomfort, which is why most people don't maintain that habit, yet it is super beneficial both physiologically and mentally. So where does the point come where it's like, okay, yes, you might not like this thing, but you know it's very beneficial for you, so stick with it. Yeah, you're getting into a domain that I call a queen bee behavior, which is a little bit in the tiny habits book, but not much. Like how do you get yourself to do stuff that at least part of you doesn't want to do? When you look at motivation, and I've mapped this out, the behavior model can be used to understand how motivation works. There's things that are motivating you to do stuff. And with my hand, I'm pointing upward like an arrow that's boosting your motivation. 
And there's things that are demotivating you to do that behavior. And you have these two forces pressing against each other. And in the case of the cold shower, you have hope that's like, oh my gosh, I've heard from these fitness gurus or Vim Hof or somebody that if I take cold showers, that I'll sleep better and I'll think better. So you have hope. Hope is the motivator. Hope to achieve better thinking or better health or something. But then you have the pain of the cold shower, which is demotivating you. So hope and pain are, there are six components of motivation. Hope and pain are two of them. So you've got hope inspiring or motivating. You've got pain pushing it down. And you can look at those as physics vectors. And maybe at the beginning, you do it where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm enduring the pain because my hope is strong enough. And I believe them off, or I believe other, my friends who have done this enough that it's only going to override the pain. But maybe after a few times of doing it, it's so painful that that downward arrow, that downward force gets strong enough to push you below the action line. Now, that said, there may be a phase where the pain becomes not so much pain, but becomes invigorating. So there may be a period where it's like, oh my gosh, what was painful the first five days is now not so painful. And now, I mean, I took cold showers for two years when I lived in Peru. So I didn't do it because of Vim Hof or whatever. I did it because we didn't have heated water. And I do know that, yes, it's painful at the beginning. I had no choice of the matter because it was cold. And eventually you get used to it. And eventually it starts feeling kind of invigorating. So you can still think of these two vectors where the, when the pain diminishes, then the hope can emerge and keep you above the action line and keep you consistent. So there may be a period of time where that transition happens. Now, for runners, it might even be more clear. So those people that run a lot, I don't. That's not my exercise of choice. But runners high. But you don't get that right away. But after a while, the pain of running that flips around and it becomes a kind of pleasure that they describe as runner's high. So one way to look at any habit is the process of what happens over time. And maybe Vim Hof or somebody said, look, people, it's going to be painful for 14 days or five days. But once you get through this period, notice how the pain diminishes and you're going to find it invigorating. So for any behavior really, it's not just what's motivating you, but it's also what's demotivating that behavior. And it's helpful to understand both of those and think of them as vectors pushing against each other. And you can increase the level of motivation by removing the demotivator, in this case, pain. I'll stop there. It's kind of a long-winded, geeky response to an excellent question. It was an excellent question, and I think it's super relevant. So thank you so much, Jeremy, for thinking of that thoughtful question. If you guys have a question for BJ, just raise your hand in about 15-ish minutes. We're going to uh, bring some folks up on stage if they have a question and have the mods kind of ask some more questions if they have questions for BJ. But for now, I really want to get back to the uh, FOG behavior model. We just went over motivation in detail. If you guys uh, weren't here before, the formula is really behavior equals motivation, ability, and prompt. And so we just went over motivation in detail, but I do want to talk about ability. So ability is how easy or difficult it is for us to do any behavior. And ability is actually something a lot of successful companies do to create their business ideas. So they'll find a product or a service that makes life super easy and they offer something really small and really specific. And that simplicity encourages people to use the product and develop a habit that they really rely on. So BJ, I came to find out that you actually taught one of your former students was the founder of Instagram. So can you walk us through how he used the dimension uh, or the ability dimension to come up with this groundbreaking idea of Instagram, which is now, you know, a hundred billion dollar company? Yeah. And let me add to that. One of the co-founders of Clubhouse is my former student. Wow. I, I wish I so was your Rohan. former student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, when Mike Krigger took my class, that was 2006, I hadn't fully figured out the behavior model because that came to me in 2007. But I was a huge advocate since about the mid-90s about simplicity. Simplicity changes behaviors. You know, make it easy, make it easy, make it easy. So I certainly was preaching that gospel of simplicity. And what they did with Instagram was they made it really, really simple to share photos. And at the time when they launched, 
there were different ways of sharing and posting photos, but Instagram came in and you would only do it on your phone. And at the beginning, it was only iOS. They didn't have Android. I mean, they're only Apple phones. And you would just take a picture and apply a filter and share it. It was drop-dead simple. And they were competing at the time against apps that were more sophisticated. They were competing against Flickr and other photo services that were way more complicated. And when tech analysts look at things, they're often looking at feature sets. And it's like, oh, feature parity. Are they offering the same features? But what Mike Krieger and his co-founder were able to do was keep it really simple. And they had the courage, the courage to keep it drop-dead simple. Only square photos, only 12 filters, only on iOS, and so on. And despite all the pressures to add features and add complexity, they resisted that. And what's striking to me is not just Instagram. When you look at everything that's gone big, Google, Twitter, TikTok, everything that's gone big started really, really small and simple. Google started with the search box. That's all it was. And I remember I was working for, I remember very, very specifically, I was working for a company in San Jose, a research center, and they were laughing at Google, how simple it was. And it's like, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, you've got AltaVista and Yahoo, and you had all these, what they were called portals that had all this information and you could also search, but Google just had a search box and people were making fun of it. It was so simple. And then when Twitter launched, TechCrunch came out and said it was idiotic because it was just so stupid and so lame because it was so simple. And so when you look at the pattern of what works, everything that has gone big in recent times, everything started out with, with the exception of games. Video games are an exception. They're an exception to lots of things. Started out really, really simple. And Clubhouse did this as well. Mm-hmm. And then only after you start getting traction, then you add features and more complexity. And so that is, and then that's the pattern for tiny habits as well. You started out really, really simple. And after the habit wires in, then you can reliably grow it. You can floss more than one tooth. You can do more than walk to the mailbox and so on. So it's the same pattern as what helps company go big as the tiny habits method. What helps you wire in habits, small, simple, get them firmly rooted And then you can worry about what's above ground, what the manifestation of that habit is. So I thought this was so interesting. It was one of my favorite parts of your book. So everybody who's listening, remember when you're coming up with a new product or a service, you've got to aim for simplicity to start, like you said. And then you can add on features and make it, you know, super fancy. So let's move on to prompt. I just would like you to kind of give a deeper overview of that. And from my understanding, if the prompt does not exist, the habit or behavior will cease to exist as well. So do I have that right? Yes. Yes, you're right. And there are three sources of prompts. So a prompt is anything that you can use the word cue. Some people still use my word trigger, which I think has become a more complicated word. So I really avoid it or a call to action. It's anything that says do this behavior now. And there's three sources. One is something in your context. So it can be a post-it note, it can be an alarm, it can be a person reminding you. So it's something contextual. You can have contextual prompts. And we have lots of those, way too many. Another one, what I call a person prompt, where you simply remember, oh, I just remembered to call my mom, or I remembered to grade my students' papers or something like that. So that's different than a contextual one. It comes from inside of you. And the third source of prompt I call an action prompt. This is what you use in Tiny Habits. You use an, an, an existing action to be the reminder to do the habit. So brushing becomes the reminder of prompt for flossing. And we use all three of those types of prompts in our everyday life. But for habits, the breakthrough and the hack is to use action prompts, to use a routine you already do to be the prompt or reminder not to use context prompts. Don't use alarms. Don't use post-it notes. Don't use whatever. I mean, because that doesn't scale. I mean, you really want to create dozens and hundreds of habits eventually. And if you have alarms and post-it notes that you're relying on to remind you, you get uh, kind of blind to those or 
you have an overwhelming number of alarms and buzzards. So you can learn to use an existing routine you already do to be your prompt for a new habit that you want. And that is the most powerful way to do it when it comes to habits. When it comes to one-time actions, like things you're just doing once, like let's say I have to make a phone call and schedule an appointment with my dentist. Well, then I'm just going to use a context prompt. I'm going to write it down on a little post-it, put it in a little place. So for a one-time action, that's great solution. But for a habit, which is a different type of behavior, you really want to use an action prompt. In other words, a routine you already do. So as you loyal listeners may know, I've done several episodes on forming habits. And that's because habits are super hard to stick with, but they're so important when it comes to becoming a successful person. And let me tell you, BJ's tiny habit technique really works. And it was so much fun to have him on the show. What really got my gears turning in this conversation is the relationship between motivation and ability. The more motivation you need to accomplish or complete a habit, the harder it's going to be to maintain it in the long term. If you're relying on motivation to keep you on track to meet your goals or set your habits, you're going to run out of steam eventually. So it's no wonder why these big, intimidating changes are super hard to stick with. So BJ says that your habits should be so small and easy that you have no excuse not to do them. This way, you're not relying on motivation, which is variable from your day to day. Now, here's the actionable advice. To get that tiny habit to stick, you've got to use those ABCs. A stands for anchor, meaning anchor your new activity and something you're already doing consistently and reliably every single day. And remember to think, after I blank, I will blank. So after I pour my cup of morning coffee, I will take my vitamins. Or after I shut down my computer for the day, I'll take a walk. Now, B stands for behavior, as in the behavior you want to turn into a habit. Remember, this must be something that you actually want to do, not something that you think you should be doing. And don't be afraid to try something out, decide you don't like it, and then try something else. This is trial and error, and it's your life. Your habits, aspiration, and goals should all be things that you actually like and want to do, not things that you feel obligated to do. And finally, C. This stands for celebrate. Once you've completed your habit or your action, you need to celebrate. The key to creating habits is emotion and tying it to emotion. And by celebrating your successes, you reinforce your new behavior. So tell yourself, way to go and throw up a fist pump. Now that you've got your tiny habit down and it's something you're doing reliably each day, you can start to grow it in complexity and layer it on. Big changes happen when you start small, so let's keep profiting one tiny habit at a time. I want to hear your experiences with tiny habits. Go ahead and DM me on Instagram or Twitter at YapWithHala. You can also find me on LinkedIn if you search for my name. It's Hala Taha. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, I do want your feedback. I read my reviews every single day. I'm obsessed with reading my reviews. So if you want to tell me how much you love the show and how much you appreciate us working on this show, drop us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. Apple Podcasts reviews mean the most to us and they provide a lot of social proof for our show. Thanks so much for listening to another awesome episode of Yap Podcast with BJ Fogg. And thanks to my great team at Yap Media. Keep on crushing it. Catch you next time. This is your host, Halataha, signing off.